Just delighted to be here once again in the house of the Lord and gather together. And as we continue in our series in the book of Acts, we remember that the last time that we talked about was in chapter 4. And in the book of Acts, we are left here with the story as the believers come together and they pray And we see here in the story, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 37 is going to be our scripture reading for today. Um, But before we go there, let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much, Lord, for being here with us. And as we study your word this morning, we ask that you will speak loud and clear and that your words may resonate in our hearts, that you have spoken to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 4, and we left the story where Peter and John are released from prison, and they are joined, and they are joined their own people and report all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And the reaction of the believers and all that were gathered as they heard this was to raise their voices together and pray to God. And the Bible says that after they prayed, this is verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And as we uh, contemplate the next verse that comes over, this is a new section in which Luke portrays two different scenarios, portrays to us two different stories. Here's the first story, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, and the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands, of or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone's had need. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this wonderful? This seems like an incredible church. The, the structure of this passage in this section actually includes a chiasm in verse 32 to 35 with the centerpiece and the focal point being in verse 33. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas are presented and then repeated in reverse order. So the result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in the passage. Each idea is connected to its reflection by a repeated word, often in a related form. So when we look at verse 34 and 35, merely develop the introduction to the topic. Verse 32, 
the unity made possible through the presence of love in the community. The mutual love of believers strengthened by the testimony of the apostles, but it was the content of the message that unified them. The resurrection of Jesus, the center of the chiasm is found in verse 33. The focal point is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, as tradition, as church tradition would say, is not in a tomb resting. He is risen and he is in heaven. For the Jews, the resurrection was an eschatological event, meaning an end-time event without parallel. But for Christians, the resurrection of Jesus is an anticipation of what makes possible the resurrection of God's people. The resurrection of Jesus instills in the heart of hope in the assurance that He is coming soon. That is the reason and the significance of the resurrection and why we are here gathered together. Consequently, the possessions of the world began to lose their luster as, as their value grow dim because we realize that the things that we have and the things that we possess will soon uh, just uh, lose their luster. They will, they will, they will um, come to an end. So... It should be noted that Luke does not say all those who own land sold their property or that those who did sold everything at once. It appears rather that those who had means did not see their possessions as their own, but they were willing to generously liquidate their assets to meet the needs of the community as they arose over time. After all, we are told in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that some 10 years later, a believer named Mary still owned a home where many gathered together to pray. So the behavior of the Jewish believers reveals a sacrificial willingness to put the needs of the community of faith before their own. And for the ancient church to live in hope was not a matter of expecting Jesus to return in a distant future, but rather of waiting for him in the here and now. They live their lives with expectantly joy. They live their lives with expectation that Jesus would soon come for them. The same mindset is particularly emphasized by Jesus when he called us to be ready for his return. Luke depicts the early community not as a model, but as an example for any community that is waiting for the coming of the Lord. The reality is that in our lives, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of our busy lives, we are often that often live in a way in which Jesus is distant and far away from the reality that He is coming soon. We want things to happen. We want things to gather, maybe in our minds, and our mentality. But are we really hopeful and are we really living in a way in which Jesus could come at any moment? What is our mindset? As we continue to notice, we notice that here in this passage, we see that Luke gives, as we read this passage, we notice that it gives us a specific example of someone who made an impact. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this amazing? Here we have a person who served in the temple and from their own heart and generosity, he saw that people were in need and that the church needed those needs for the mission. And in order to provide for those needs for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, he sold a piece of property that he owned whether the property was located in Cyprus or somewhere around Jerusalem or, or it was a property that he owned or all of it or part of it, we don't know. Whatever the case, it was a generous gift that he freely gave, not from what he was expected, no special privilege in return because we know that today many people give for the recognition and for the accolades or, or because of their names to be printed in a plaque. But the Bible says that when he gave, he gave freely with, with no special privilege, expecting no special privilege in return. The Bible says that he merely placed it at the offering at the feet of the apostles. And you might be thinking, man, how would I have loved to have seen this level of generosity, hospitality, radical love, bold preaching? How would I love to see Peter preaching in the pulpit every week about the resurrection of Jesus and the church thriving and flourishing and moving? Wouldn't that be incredible if only the modern church was like the ancient church? And I know that's often the mindset that we get when we look back at the book of Acts. There is like this feeling, like this uh, level of despair or of longing. And if we only could get back to that. It's, it's like this feeling that we, we, we want to get back to it or in that we feel like we're so far out from the good old primitive early days if we can only get back to that. And if you're feeling that way this morning, I want to invite you to just stay with me and keep, I'll keep reading the story because soon after chapter 4 ends, we have another story which is a contrast story to the story of Barnabas. As we stated earlier at the very beginning, Luke is presenting two different stories. For you see, the mention of Barnabas prepares the way as we are introduced to the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira. Read with me Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold possession And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the the price of the land for yourself? 
while it remained, was it not your own? And after it, it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed, breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh man, this story, I just, I, I, it's, it, but it continues. And it says, And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what has happened. And Peter answered for her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down and his feet and at her at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Wow. When I read this text, it is just one of those difficult passages to read. Um, and and we look, we look at this story and Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias must have been a relatively common name for there are two others who are named Ananias in the book of Acts. We see that in Acts chapter 9, we see the follower of Jesus in Damascus is named Ananias. But we also see in Acts chapter 23 that the high priest is named Ananias. But here are two stories, two contrasts, a positive one of Barnabas and a long a longer negative story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's like this contrasting stories. First mentioning the good, then mentioning the bad. Mentioning the ideal and mentioning not not what to do. And when we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see that they had apparently accepted the call to generosity. Unfortunately, what they had coveted was the prestige that came from giving a large offering. They lied by claiming that they were giving all the proceeds to the apostles from a piece of property that they had sold. This reminds me of an Old Testament story, as, as you w- would recall, a parallel story like Achan in Joshua 7.1, where they secretly decided to keep back some of the money for themselves. The sudden nature of the death of both Ananias and Sapphira indicates that it was a divine act of judgment. And this is kind of really, really scary to discuss because imagine here in the morning if we see someone all of a sudden fall flat on their face and they die. That would be really scary. If we would see that all of a sudden, I mean, wouldn't that create such an impact? 
if all those who are gathered here together, something like that would happen. But whether the, the death was caused by a heart attack or a shock due to the public exposure of the deceit, it was not enti- or that it was entirely supernatural is not stated. All that we know is that judgment was passed and the consequences of what they did. What is clear is that they had failed to recognize that God sees and knows all and that people are ultimately accountable for their actions. And so this was not, this is not an easy passage by any way of the imagination as modern Christians who have a sense of God's judgment as being a negative thing, right? This story feels like one of those that should have been in the Old Testament. Surely not the New Testament, because in the New Testament, God is, is loving. Jesus is loving. He is the good shepherd. Surely this story should have been left in the older pages of the Bible. Wrong. God is the same yesterday as he is today. And apparently Luke is incredibly honest as he makes sure that it stays in the pages of the Bible. The fact that scripture included this story shows something about the honesty of scripture. Because it would have been much easier and much wiser for the Bible to exclude this hard stories and to only put there together all the nice stories, to put all the ones that are polished, all the ones that are simpler, all the ones that are polite, and to put them all together. But the fact that the Bible would include this story shows the honesty and the integrity of the, of the authorship to include a really contemplative, a complicated story like this. But doesn't this story also show the reality of human beings? Doesn't this story also show the brokenness and the reality of who we are without Jesus? And so this story, as we see this story, it might be a little bit difficult and we might feel, I feel like all the air has been sucked in sucked out of this room. Everyone's really quiet this morning. But this is a very difficult passage to to talk about. And if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable with this, I want to assure you that it's okay to feel uncomfortable because there are certain situations in our lives and in Scripture that we do not understand. And it's okay for us not to understand these passages because God operates in different ways that we cannot see. And His ways are not our ways. And so for us to understand this mystery, I just want to push a little bit gently, push a little bit back this morning and just say that this type of judgment, as we're struggling with the story of God's heart and active judgment, and as we go through the passages of, of the Bible where we see that this is a hard judgment, I just actually want to say that this is the exception and not the rule when we look at the Bible, because oftentimes we see that God is patient and loving, and He's He is He is just He's just there waiting patiently, and we see that God is is it, it, we see actually the opposite in Scripture. We see many stories in which we wish that God would step in and that He would intervene, and we wish that God would step in and deal with evil. 
but he's often far too patient with evil. And here's another challenge for us might be this morning. We might have this view of the church where we're just gone so far away in in what, what the church should be like. Many of us might feel like we need to go back to the early church. If, if that's your, protect, your perspective this morning, I just want to challenge you with Acts chapter 5. Here, we have just started the story of, uh, in the book of Acts, and we are seeing already the consequences of the church. We're already seeing their struggles. We're already seeing their obstacles. We're already seeing all of these things that are going on. And we haven't even finished the book of Acts. And the church is already wrestling with all of these situations. And there is sin and there is imperfections and there is obstacles within the church. But I just want to clarify that even though the church was struggling with all these situations, it has always been God's church. And so I just want to clarify that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they held back the money. They could have just sold the property, let's just say, for 45% of the proceeds. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was in their assumption that they were, they, they, in their assumption, they made it seem like they were giving more than what they actually did. They were deceptive. And Peter says, you lied. In other words, they were being deceptive. The love of money and the pursuit of their human recognition and the praise led to their spiritual death. Eventually, all of those things, if we get so wrapped up in the things of this world, we get so wrapped up in our materialistic loves and in everything that is going around us instead of the love of God. All those things lead to our spiritual death and ultimately to our destruction. Here's the biggest issue. Because the community, as we know it, they were all a a community. They were, from the very inception, they were created and motivated by the Holy Spirit. They were to be a light, a beacon to the world. Imagine living in a Hellenistic environment under the Roman Empire with paganism, with secularism, with all of these different things that were happening during their era. And the church was to stand firm without hypocrisy, with no stain and no, no, no stain in its way. And it seems that in this particular occasion, God would not allow for a false precedence to take place. At the inception of the church, pride, hypocrisy, deceit, and and coercive giving could fracture the newborn church. And it seems like God would just step in and see this as a very serious imperfection among the believers. And He would have to step in because the reputation of God's church was on the line. And He would just not allow for that to happen as the church was just early growing and being born in this new Hellenistic, secularism, Roman empire. But I just want to say that even in the midst of all of these things that were happening, 
we see that God was still with his church. God was always there with his church. There's in Acts of the Apostles, page 12, it says that during the ages of spiritual darkness, the church of God has been a city set on a hill. From age to age, through the successive generations, the pure doctrines of heaven have been unfolding with its boundaries. Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is one of is one object upon which God bestows his special sense, his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. The, the church is God's object upon he bestows his special sense of supreme regard. The reputation of the church grew both by the positive miracles, but also grew by the negative story because both believers and non-believers learned that the Christian faith commitments were not to be ignored. Jesus was still up front in the church. He was still controlling in the church and he was still navigating in the church. He was still living through the apostles, through the believers in the early church. And this, I don't know about you, but this brings to me great encouragement. This brings to me great encouragement. Because as I see the church and as I contemplate the church of the ancient, of the ancient church, and I see our church today, we're all dealing with the same situations, the same circumstance. There's problems in our church. There's obstacles. There's situations that are getting in the way. But even in the midst of all those obstacles and all those situations, we have a God who loves us and who is directing us. And the Holy Spirit is directing His church. This is His church. And He's working and willing to work through us and in us for His honor and for His glory. And that should be a great encouragement to us because let me tell you, the early church did not have it all together as, it, as we might seem it to be. But they relied on the Holy Spirit. They prayed. They were together. Because here in the beginning of the book, we see that they're already facing a lot of obstacles. They're already facing a lot of things. And all of these things are happening within the church. What would God do in our church? As we see all the wonders, as we see all the things that He has done for his church, and how he continues to work in his church today. Let me just say that the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of man. Regardless, however we see it, with all our imperfections, as feebled as we may seem, as discouraged with all our imperfections, the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of man. It was organized for the service and for the mission to carry the gospel to the world. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and sufficiency. The members of the church, those whom he has called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, are the show of of his glory. 
even though not all is well in the church. As the episode of Ananias and Sapphira demonstrates, we see that the church pursues its mission with strength as it tries to remain pure for God. So what is God calling us to do today? What is the invitation that God is stirring in our heart? What is God impressing us to do? We see and we look around and we look at ourselves and we say, this church, the labors are few. Only a few are doing a little, all of it. And, 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 and there's a few that are not doing, they're doing everything. And, and there's always the, this, this tug of war, it seems, in which there are, if only the church was this, then the church would be better. And there's always opinions and suggestions about what the church should look like and what the church should be like. But I want to bring to you a suggestion. The church should be the church of God. The church should be a church that moves forward intimately, guiding, seeking, looking towards God, always. The potential of the church is limitless. God wants to transform us. God wants to work through us for the honor and the glory that the world may know what He has done for us. That we may be beacons of His hope to others as we share the good news of salvation, that Jesus is alive and that He has resurrected and that He is coming soon for us. Isn't that the message? Let's stop the contention. Let's stop the, the divisiveness. Let's stop whatever is holding us as a church. And let's pull through together. Honing only on God. Relying by faith in Jesus. Because things may seem bleak and dark. But let me just tell you, that is when it requires us to have faith the things that we cannot see, and to know that Jesus is still in control of our hearts and our lives. The Bible says here that if we rely on His faith, it's not by sight, but it's by His Spirit that we will be able to go forward. Dallas Willard says, to know Christ in the modern world is to know Him in the world now. To know Him in our world now is to live interactively with Him right where you are in your daily activities. This is the spiritual life in Christ. To know Him, to share Him, to live with Him, to, to rejoice with Him, and to be with Him always. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you this morning because we want to consecrate our lives. We want to live more like you, to share you, Lord, to live with expectancy, to know that you are coming soon for us, and to know, Lord, that you care for us and that you love us. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way in which we are continually relying on you and not ourselves. To know, Lord, that you are there with us and that whatever happens, however this 
earth will end, that we know how it will end, that we can be there holding on to you every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.